In his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey says that the first habit of highly effective people is to be proactive. He says, being proactive is more than taking initiative. It's taking responsibility. Covey says, proactive people understand they are responsible for the choices they make in their life. He says, highly proactive people recognize their responsibility. They do not blame their circumstances, their conditions, or their conditioning for their behavior. Their behavior is a product of their own conscious choice based on values rather than a product of conditions based upon feeling. Now he says this is in contrast to reactive people. Reactive people blame their circumstances. Reactive people blame their conditions of their life. Reactive people blame their conditioning for the decisions that they make. Nothing is ever really their fault. The proactive person accepts responsibility for their actions and their reactions uh, in response to the things going on in their life. The reactive person, on the other hand, takes little or no responsibility for their actions and reactions. And instead of taking responsibility, the reactive person blames their actions and their choices and their reactions on their circumstances. This happened, so I had no chance. They blame it on their conditioning. This is just how I am. Or that's just the way I was raised. Now what I like about Covey's idea is how biblically accurate it is. Scripture makes it clear that we are responsible for our actions and our reactions. This is especially true for those of us who would say we are disciples of Jesus. Right? For Scripture says that we have been freed from our slavery to our sinful nature. Scripture says that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Scripture says we have the same power working in us that raised Jesus from the dead. We, we are told that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. As disciples of Jesus, we have been given everything we need to live a godly, faithful life in Christ. So we, we are meant to be proactive and not reactive. If we are to, to seize the day, then we must learn to be proactive. How do we do this? Open your Bible. To Ephesians 5, uh, verses 15 through 17. And I don't have the page number now, so I don't know what page that's on. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 5 and 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come this morning with a desire to to hear you, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We come with a desire, God, not to be the same, but to be changed. We, We want to accept responsibility for our lives. We want to take charge and do the things that you would have us to do. We want to lay aside our excuses and our reasonings and all of the things that we say that keeps us from doing your will in our lives. Father God, today, 
that as we look at your word, your Holy Spirit would come and he would make your word living and active and he would speak it to us and he would show us areas of our lives that need to change. That he would strengthen us in areas of our lives we're doing as we should. Father, let your Holy Spirit work in us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us, to make us who we ought to be. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey. Give us eyes that would see. Give us wills that would do all the things that you'd want done. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak the word that's been given to me. Help me not to be distracted. Help me not to get in the way. Help me just to do what needs to be done. Father, be glorified today in all that happens. Use this to change us. Make us to be able to go out this week Seize the day to testify to a lost and a dying world that Jesus is not only real, but He is great and awesome and worthy of our praise. And we ask this in all these things in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. In verses 1 through 14, what we've talked about in previous weeks, Paul talked about the need of the church of Jesus Christ to wake up so the light and life of Christ could flow through them again. Now this is important because the world around them is spiritually dark and spiritually dead. The dark and dead world needs the light and life that comes from Christ through His church. Now we in in the modern church, we seem to have forgotten something disciples of previous generations that they knew. Right? Previous generations, they understood that how we as disciples of Christ live from day to day, it is crucial to the cause of Christ and to the welfare of our society. Right? Now remember, as disciples of Jesus, we are meant to be salt. right? And that means we are to have a, a righteous influence on our world. So everywhere that you and I go, we are always representatives and disciples of Jesus. And so we are to have a positive, righteous influence Everywhere we go. We are also meant to be light. And light is means that we're supposed to have a righteous testimony. Everywhere that we go. Because again, we always represent Jesus. We are always disciples of Jesus. So we are to be, no matter where we are, who we're around, what we're doing. We are to have a righteous influence and have a righteous testimony before the world around us. This means what we do or what we don't do. It matters. As disciples of Jesus, we either contribute to society and make the world a better place by spreading the light and the life of Christ around, or we contribute to tearing society down by withholding the light and the life of Christ the people around us so desperately need. We either proclaim the message of Christ with our actions and our words, or we withhold the message of life through our inaction and through our silence. This is why we must be wise and careful in how we live. This is the point Paul is making in verses 15 through 17. He starts this section in verse 15 by see that you walk circumspectly. That's probably not a word that we use very often. The Greek word carries with it the idea of precision and accuracy. The English word, it comes from two Latin words which meant to look around. And when you put those two words together, those two ideas together, what you find it is a, a word that talks about being careful and deliberate as we walk through life, as we go through life. It is a picture of being careful and deliberate with every step that we take, every action we take, everything we do. So imagine it this way. Imagine you're a soldier and you're told to cross a field. You're told to walk 
from the church to the wine. And you're told that it is possible the field is mine. Nobody knows for sure. And nobody knows where they are mines, if there are any there. But it's very possible, highly probable, there are mines. Also, there are likely enemies hiding somewhere out in the field. And they are looking to jump up and kill you when you're not paying attention. Now, how would you walk across the field? Would you lollygag across it? Would you skip across it? Would you just kind of walk and look at your phone as you went across it? Or would you be very careful, very deliberate with every step that you took, making sure that was really ground and not a mine, looking around the whole time, making sure no one was jumping up? That's how we would walk. We would be very careful, very deliberate, very aware. And that is a picture of how believers are supposed to live every day of their lives. But it's not a picture of being careful and deliberate about just any old thing. Look how verse 17 ends. What the will of the Lord is. We're to be careful and deliberate about doing the will of the Lord in this world. As disciples of Jesus, we know there is a God. We know this God has loved us and has redeemed us from the curse and the condemnation of our sin. We also know the cost of that redemption was the life of God's own Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, every day, we make a conscious decision to be deliberate and careful to do God's will about all things because we know God has a will. We know from Scripture that God has a will in how we speak, in how we think, in what we value, in our morals, in our priorities, in our attitudes, in our actions, and our reactions. We know that God has spoken to every one of those about how we're to be in that. And so, because God has redeemed us, again from verse, verse 1, because we are His dear children, we are careful and deliberate to live out God's will in every area of our lives. So the key truth is disciples must be careful and deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. Disciples must be careful and deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. How do we live this way? Well, this passage gives us four ways. First, be wise. Notice how verse 15 goes on. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. In Scripture, the fool has very little to do with necessarily intellect or education. Fool is someone who is careless or thoughtless in how they live. Right? The, the fool takes no thought or no concern for their speech. Right? In the Bible, a fool speaks without thinking. Uh, a, a fool takes no thought or concern for their, their thought life. They just sort of let their minds roam and they aren't deliberate about what they think on what they meditate upon. Fools are not deliberate or careful about their values. They kind of let society and others that they're around shape what they value and what's important to them. Fools are not careful and deliberate with their morals. Right? They, they, aren't, they don't have like a moral code that this is right and this is wrong. Their morals are largely shaped by who they're around and what they're doing. They sort of go with the flow, go with the current and whatever everyone else's morals are, that's what their morals are as well. Fools aren't careful and deliberate about their priorities. 
Right? They just, again, they sort of drift through life. They're not thoughtful. They're not careful. And, and so they have no real focus on where they're going or what they're doing or what they're going to be in life. Fool, fools take no thought or no care for their attitudes. Right? They, a, a fool really doesn't feel they can control their attitude. Their attitude is in response to what's going on around them. A, a fool takes no thought to their actions. They don't think about the consequences for their actions. They just sort of do what they want to do and devil may care what happens. I, I just don't know. I don't care. Fools take no thought or no care for their reactions. Right? They react more instinctively than thoughtfully. Scripture teaches as disciples of Jesus we are to be wise and not fools. Scripture often contrasts the fool and the wise to, to emphasize this. Let me show you this in some passages. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Fool's wrath is presently known. Fools are quick-tempered. If you push the button of a fool, they're going to yell and scream and let you know that you have made them mad. But a prudent person, a wise person, is able to have self-control and keep their attitude, keep their temper under control, and not jump up and, and act crazy at that time. Prudent men deal with knowledge, but the fool layeth open his folly. The prudent or the wise person is careful about choosing his actions. That's the picture of dealeth with knowledge. He's careful about what he does, when he does it, and why he does it. The fool, on the other hand, does not carefully choose his action. He just goes through without thought, without concern, and in fact he may even brag. About the fact that he does not think before he acts. He just, oh, I don't ever think about the consequences. I just go and do whatever I want. That's a fool. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. The simple pass on and are punished. The wise person can see the path they're on and where it's leading them. If this path is leading to negative consequences, the wise person makes course corrections. The fool, on the other hand, can see maybe that this path they're on, it's leading to negative consequences, but they just keep going, assuming it's all going to work out in the end. Picture it like this. You're driving 60 miles an hour, and there's a, there's a brick wall directly in front of you. The wise person says, I better slow down, turn, get out of the way, because I want to hit that brick wall, it's not going to move. The fool, on the other hand, says... I'm just going to keep on going. Everything's going to work out in the end. And in fact, the fool, when the consequences that they saw and ignored fall down on their head, the fool typically says, that wasn't my fault. I had no idea this would happen. That's a fool. A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till after the idea of a fool uttering all his mind seems to be in the context of some sort of emotional outburst. So if that's the case, a fool is one who gives full vent to all of his feelings whenever they want to do so. So a fool has emotional outbursts anytime they're angry, they're upset, they just blow up and emotionally and verbally vomit on everybody that's around them. No matter the context, no matter where they're at, they just, boom, here's what's going on. The wise, however, are able to keep their emotional outbursts under control. They're able to let these feelings out at appropriate times to appropriate people in appropriate ways. That's just some of the contrast between the wise and the fool. 
Fools go with the flow. Fools are driven by circumstances. Fools are driven by their emotions. Fools are driven by their desires. Fools are reactive. Disciples of Jesus are not meant to be fools. We are not meant to live as fools. We are meant to be wise. People who are deliberate and careful about the way they live their lives. Scripture says to let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the way of your feet and let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right, to the left. Remove your foot from evil. I love that passage. I preached on it several years ago on a Wednesday night. And the title of the message was "Plastic." Don't Be a Plastic Duck. And the story, there's a story that a, a box, a crate containing plastic ducks fell off an ocean liner. And the box broke open and the plastic ducks dispersed into the sea. And it was years ago, you can Google it, Google plastic ducks in the ocean. It's a really cool story. They periodically just wash up all over the world. They're still out there, still floating around. And, and the point is, a, a plastic duck in the ocean, what does it do? It goes wherever the wind blows. It goes wherever the tide takes it. It doesn't set a course and follow it. The, the, the plastic duck lets the current of public opinion, public circumstances, the conditions and conditioning, the difficulty of life, choose what they will do, how they will do it, how they will act, how they will react, and they offer no resistance whatsoever. Disciples of Jesus are not meant to be plastic ducks who go with the flow. Disciples of Jesus are meant to fix our eyes on where we want to go and doing God's will. We're meant to ensure the path we're on will actually get us to that place. We're meant to be determined that we, we don't turn to the right or to the left. This is God's will. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to deviate even a little bit from it. And I'm going to remove my foot from evil. I'm going to choose holiness over sin. That's what it means to be wise instead of foolish. Disciples of Jesus must be careful and deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. This requires us to be wise, to live wisely. So we've got to be wise, but secondly, we, we must redeem the time. Imagine for a second, you received a letter from the bank. And it informs you that they have created a special account with your name on it for $86,000. $400. And every morning, $86,400 would be deposited in your account. You could do anything you wanted to do with that money. The only catch is you can't carry the money over for the next day. Any unused money goes back to the bank, and then they issue you an extra $86,400 every day. Scott, you guys going to issue a letter like that out anytime soon? No. No. <laughs> it is worth a shot. Now, most of us, how would we use that account? Would we sit at home and watch Netflix and be like, ah, it'll be okay? Or would we make a point to use the most we could out of that money every single day of our lives? And even if we couldn't find a way to spend it to use it, we would find ways to invest it, wouldn't we? We would find ways to make sure that money was used for something productive and good. Do you know that God has actually given us an account like that. It's time. Every day, our account is credited with 86,400 seconds. No more, no less. Every night, the account is cleared. No balance is carried over into the next day. There's never an overdraft. We get exactly 
86,400 every day. If we waste the time that we are given, that loss is ours to bear. There's no going back to yesterday and pulling from its kind. There's no borrowing from tomorrow's balance because we've wasted time today. We have to live right here and right now on the 86,400 seconds that God has given us today. Every day we're given 86,400 seconds to spend. And every day we spend every single one of those seconds. And we either invest them in things that matter or we waste them in ways that don't. And what Scripture is calling on us to do in verse 16, redeem the time, is to invest it. Invest every second that God has given you to do something that matters eternally, to do something that is significant. And this requires us to be proactive about how we use our time and what we do with our lives. Because we're only given this one life. And once this one life is passed, we get no more chance to do things that count for eternity. I love this verse. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid to his fathers and saw corruption. David served God according to the will of God, right? David's life was one who was spent serving God. Of course, not perfectly, we know that. But he served. But notice when David served. David served his own generation. He couldn't serve the generation before his. He couldn't serve the generation after his. He had one opportunity to serve and that was in his generation. He had one opportunity in the life that he lived to do the will of God to the best of his abilities. And then once he died, he was through. He had one life to live for God. And once that life was lived, it was over. He had a specific amount of time and a limited frame of time in which he could make his life count for God. And once that time was over, it was over. And what was true of David is true for us. Poem I've quoted frequently says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If we want to make our lives count for Christ, we have to do it now. If we aren't careful, we can put off serving Jesus until some later date when everything is just the way we imagine it will be. And then we're going to wake up and we're going to realize we have wasted our life. We have spent our 86,400 seconds day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year on things that do not count. And there'll be no going back. There'll be no making a difference. There'll be no fixing what we've wasted, it cannot be gotten back. We must do it now. How much of what we spend our lives on has eternal significance? How much, to put it in the context of 1 Corinthians 3, where on Judgment Day, everything that we have done is going to be judged, and it's going to be shown to either be wood, hay, or stubble that burns up in the judgment, or it's going to be shown to be gold, silver, and precious stone that shines forth in the judgment. How much of what we spend our lives doing is wood, hay, and stubble that will burn up on Judgment Day and will count for nothing? How much is gold, silver, and precious stones that we're investing for the future so that when we stand before Jesus, we can have all of these 
crowns and we can say, look, this is what your sacrifice, this is what it meant to me. And we can toss them at his feet and worship him as great and awesome. It's glorious. Let's not even think about eternity, just be realistic. Put it in a more limited time frame. How much of what we spend our day-to-day lives on is going to matter in ten years, five years, three years? I look at Facebook, the speaking of things that may not matter, but I, I look at the history, you know, on this day in Facebook. I like to look at that and see older pictures of the girls and things like that. And, and as I go through there periodically, I'm pretty out. I look at that and I think, gosh, the person on this account was apparently a moron at some point. I mean, there's just ridiculously dumb things, time wasted, that was useless, can't be gotten back, has no didn't have redeeming quality then. Doesn't have any redeeming quality now. And we're talking nine years is as far back as I can go. Nine years. It's already lost all value. What a waste. Time could have been better spent. At what point are we going to look back and say, gosh, I wish I had lived differently then. I wish I had done differently there. I wish... How about instead of waiting until that day and looking back with regret, we redeem the time Now, as disciples of Jesus, we're we're supposed to redeem the time. We're to be careful and deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. This requires us to redeem the time now. So we want to be wise. We want to redeem the time. We also have to understand the times. Look at the last of verse 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. That's why we have to redeem the time, because the world around us is evil. Think about the selected news that we are given from our news agencies. Doesn't that just constantly remind us of evil in the world, great and small, and it's all around us? Our task as believers is not merely to be aware of this, but to let the evil of the day motivate us to to live a certain way. And when we talk about redeeming the time because the days are evil, we we have to understand the days aren't going to get better. Right? I mean, the world is not going to get better on its own. It doesn't, in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter who wins in 2020. They're not going to fix problems in America. It, It doesn't matter in a lot of ways who's the prime minister of Israel or who's the prime minister of Canada because they're not going to make the world a better place. It is not going to just get better. Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Let me show you this. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. That should be page 915. we read the first five verses and we'll come back and talk about them. This know also, in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, Incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. 
So Paul writes to Timothy and he prophetically tells him about what it's going to be as we get closer to the end of time. And he says that it's going to be a, a dangerous, a perilous time. And that would be bad, but he, he doesn't want to leave it in the realm of some sort of a nebulous ooh, danger. He begins to give us specific reasons as to why the times will be perilous. And in verses 2 through 5, he lays this out. And, and really it's a picture of a godless world. Right? And, and this godlessness is seen in a variety of ways. Right? The, towards the end, it will be godless because people love themselves more than they love God. Oh, as we go through this, just ask yourself, does any of this sound familiar? It will be godless because people love themselves more than they love God. Right? And it's just a picture of, in some cases, it will be a picture of people who profess faith. And know what God has said about right and wrong. But they're going to choose to do what they want to do anyway. I, it feels good. It makes me happy. I don't care what God has said. I, I'm going to do what I want to do. They will be covetous. They will love money more than they love God. Again, this in some, context, in some ways pictures people who are professing as believers. And yet, there is that love of money they're pursuing more than a love of God. It could be seen in a lot of ways. It could be seen in the fact they, they just can't come to church because they always have to work. It could be seen in the fact they don't give because if they give, they might not have enough to put out for, uh, give for themselves. But it will be they love money more than they love God. It says that they will be boasters and proud. Right? They're going to be puffed up with pride. And again, the pictures they don't see a need for God. Or they're too smart to believe in God. What do I need God for? I live in America. I live in a technological age. You can't expect me to believe in a God who just exists up in the sky somewhere that nobody's ever seen and follow a book that was written thousands of years ago by goat farmers. Surely, surely we're too far advanced to believe something like that. They are blasphemers. It pictures people going out of the way to blaspheme God. Now, I think this will be in a cult. A lot of this stuff will be culture-wide. So some of it will just be people. Who go out of the way to be blasphemous. Others of it will be a culture-wide thing. So let's say entertainment that goes out of its way to mock Christ, to mock His sacrifice, to mock the idea of God, to belittle that. That would be what was going on in those last days. They will be disobedient to parents. And this is it's disobedience to parents. It's a rejection of God-given authority. right? Because that's what the Bible is. right? The Bible says... Children are to obey their parents. That's pretty clear. So, in this day, there will be a rejection of God-given authority. I think it will be all God-given authority, but it's probably going to be most clearly evident in the home. Again, think about what we see. What what does popular music promote? Does it promote children obey your parents? Or stick it to your parents? Because they don't know diddly squat. They're ignorant old people. What What does most modern TV promote when it comes to, to, to parents and children. Good, healthy, solid relationship between them where the parents are the bosses and the children obey because that's what God wants. Or parents who are essentially morons. And if it wasn't for their 12-year-old daughter, they would probably die of starvation because they can't even open a can. Anyway, I'll move on. They will be unthankful. Right? Not thankful for anything. Instead, there will be a An entitlement mentality. They deserve what they have. They deserve more. They will be unholy. Unholy, it seems to be 
an idea of people being shameless about their rejection of God and their sin against God. So, not just sin, but there'll be an acceptance of it. It'll be like, well, I live in sin, who cares? I'm, I'm this way, I was born this way, I live this way, I do this. What difference does it make? I'm proud of my sin and the way that I live my life. Without natural affection. They won't love God or one another. It pictures a, a heartless society devoid of any sort of natural affection for anyone or anything. If you could imagine a society so heartless that they argued over whether it was okay to kill a newborn child, that would kind of be the picture of the society that Paul is referencing here. They will be truce breakers. And that means that they will be unforgiving. It, it pictures a world in which there's no slack given for another person's mistakes or failures. So again, if you can picture it, imagine a world in which if you did something when you were 15 and somebody can find out about it and post it on social media for the world to see, suddenly they will ruin your whole life for it. Picture a world like that. And you can picture the idea of the unforgiving world that Paul is talking about. They will be false accusers. They will be slanderers. It's a time when it will be okay to say evil things about anyone you don't like. So again, if you can picture a world so evil where we could say anything, anything about anyone we don't like. Let, let's say, for instance, just to pick one out of random air. Let's say someone disagrees with me politically. And I find some article written by, you know, hipandfree.com. And it says that this guy I don't like, that he's all of these crazy things and does all of this terrible stuff. And, and nowhere else in the whole world is reporting it. But this confirms my bias. I don't like him. So I'm not going to look to find out if it's real. I'm not going to be careful. I would just post it. Because it has to be true because I hate that guy. Right? I'm slandering him with these things that are probable lies. That if you can picture a world that heartless, you're picturing the world that Paul is, is talking about here. They will be inconstant. They will not have self-control. Instead of having self-control, they will do whatever they want. And they will find ways to excuse it. And this... Lack of self-control, doing what they want, will largely be seen in lust and anger. Because nothing says lack of self-control like lust and anger. So if you can picture a world in which every sexual thing in the world is okay, so long as you feel good about it, you can kind of picture what Paul's talking about. If you can picture a world in which any sort of act of violence is okay, it can be excused, there can be a reason why it's not their fault, and why they shouldn't have react, shouldn't have held their in their anger. You can imagine the world that Paul is talking about. They will be fierce. They'll be brutal. And this this word is interesting, and in it usually refers to a savage beast in the wild that cannot restrain its fierceness. One of my commentaries said the word should refer to wild jackals, but never humans. But in, in this day, as we get close to the end, it will. And the brutality won't just be seen in, in the murder, but in the ways the murder and the violence is committed. And 
the brutality will be demonstrated by those who enjoy watching the brutality. So if you can imagine a world where people violently assault and hurt people for fun, and other people watch it for fun, you can imagine the world Paul is talking about. They will despise those who are good. This refers to good people and good things. This will be a, a time in which they call evil good and good evil. Now, so if you can imagine a world in which, let's say, uh, just randomly, let's say it's a world in which parents exploit their children sexually by having them dress in sexual ways and dance for sexual deviance. And as they do that, the world applauds that deviancy. And if someone speaks out against it, the world says, you're a hater. You're what's wrong with America. You're what's wrong with the world. If you can imagine a world that twisted, you can imagine the world Paul is talking about. They will be traitors. Verse 4. Traitors refers to more than just betraying your country. It's a, it's a betrayal of any sort of trust or commitment that's made. So if you can imagine a world where people routinely look for ways to get out of their word. I said I would do it, but you know, it doesn't, I, the contract I signed didn't quite cover this, so now I don't have to pay you. Or, yes, I know we made a vow to one another till death do us part, but this other person came along and they're a lot smoking hot than you are. If you can imagine a world where it's just okay to break your word like that, you can imagine the world that Paul is talking about. Heady. Heady, it, it refer, could probably better translate it as reckless. It, it pictures a person who is given to doing whatever they want to do without any regard to the consequences these actions may have on themselves or others. Right, so, if you can imagine a world where, let's say, someone were to push a 75-pound log off a cliff and it fell on a photographer and crushed her and killed her. And the kids who did it would just say, oh, well, we, we just wanted to push the log off and scare her. We never thought about that. Right? That sort of recklessness. You, you can imagine the world that Paul might be talking about. They will be high-minded, verse 4. And this picture is someone so full of themselves they see no need for God or for anyone else. Someone who feels they are totally self-sufficient. They are better than others. They don't need anyone or anything. They are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And I think possibly the idea is they just can't imagine a God who would care about them fulfilling their fleshly desires and passions in any way that they want. God would just want them to be happy. God would just want them to do what feels good to them. And if such a God that did care about that did exist, He is not really worthy of praise or worship or devotion. He has no place in their life. Now, as godless as this world is, it's made worse by the fact that godlessness is actually within those who are professing believers. right? Because they have a, a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Right, so, the powerless religion with a form of godliness, but denies its power. There's, there will still be churches in this time. But many of these churches will only have an outward appearance of godliness. They will, they will talk about Jesus. They will use the right words. They will probably have a Bible and they will read from it at times. But they will deny the crucial power of God. They will deny the power of the Son of God who came to set men free. And that they would be free indeed. 
Rather than a Savior who came to save people from sin, set them free from sin, they will talk of a Savior who came to make people happy in their sin, to make them comfortable with who they were and who God made them to be. There is no power in this religion to deliver and make a holy people consecrated unto God. Instead, it's more of a God who just, golly gee, wants you to be happy. And from such... We are to turn away. Now, we know that all of these things have been somewhat characteristic forever. But the picture is that they will intensify as it gets closer to the end. They will be more in quantity, and they will be more in acceptability. And while we don't know when Jesus will return, logic tells us we're closer today than we were yesterday. History is always moving forward to the return of Jesus. As we move closer, evil will intensify these things will become more and more common. As disciples of Jesus, we cannot afford to be naive about the state of the world around us. We cannot afford to see what's going on in our culture and think it's no big deal. We can't afford to see what's going on and pretend that a politician is going to fix it. We can't pretend it's going to get better on its own. We can't not see it. We can't turn a blind eye to it. But neither can we see it and become afraid or discouraged. Neither can we let it cause us to give up and quit and be fearful people. Rather, understanding the time should motivate us to redeem the time. Turn back to Ephesians. And take advantage of every opportunity we're given to do what God would have us to do. Understanding the time should motivate us to redeem the time and Take advantage of every opportunity we're given to share the gospel because only the gospel undoes the immorality of the culture and the person. Understanding the time should motivate us to redeem the time and take every opportunity to disciple our children, equip them to live righteously in an unrighteous world till the time will come when they will grow up and move off and it will be too late and the unrighteous world will disciple our children away from Jesus if we do not disciple them to Jesus. Understanding the time should motivate us to redeem the time and demonstrate the love of Christ by helping those in need when the opportunity arises. And understanding the time should motivate us to redeem the time and prioritize our lives around the things that matter. The things that have eternal value. When we live unaware of the times, we live as though we have all the time in the world. And we don't. Disciples must be careful and deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. And this requires us to understand the times. And then finally, we must submit to God's will.
Many times when we talk about doing God's will, we limit it to things like praying, reading our Bible, going to church, living a holy life. And certainly those things are God's will. God's will for our life is not limited to those things. As I understand Scripture, God has a, a will for every area of our life. We are given instructions on our marriages. We are given instructions on how to raise our children, on our finances. The thoughts that we think and how we're to let our minds roam and what we're to fix our thoughts on. How we're to react to stressors. What we're to do in our lives. How we're to speak. There is, there is no area of our lives that is not covered in doing God's will. But if we're to submit to God's will in these areas, we must know what God's will is. We cannot do what we do not know. In verse 17 it says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Again, there's a contrast between the fool and the wise. And, and here's the contrast. The fool says, I don't know what God's will is, so I'll just do whatever I want. Well, there's the Bible. Go and see what God's will is. The fool says, Whoo! That's a lot of work. I mean, I think, I, I think my heart will be faithfully leading me. Despite the fact the Bible says that a person who follows his heart is a fool. The fool takes no thought to God's will. The fool puts forth no effort to know God's will. The wise, the wise though, they're not just going to go with the flow and assume that if it feels good, it's God's will. They're going to search the scripture. They're going to find the answer. They're going to seek to know what God wants them to do and then they are going to do it. And really, finding God's will is not as hard as we often want to make it. We often act like God's will is this really mysterious thing that no one can know. And I've prayed and I just don't have any peace. And I haven't had a vision about what God's will is. The reality, the majority of God's will is, is given here. I mean, if God has told us not to be fools, but to be wise, understanding His will, then God is going to show us His will. He's going to reveal His will. God, the reality is, God is more willing to show us His will so that we can do it than we are willing to do it. I'm convinced that in many cases, if not most cases, the problem isn't that we don't know God's will. It's that we don't want to do God's will. We want to do our will and we want God to bless our will and our want and our desire. And really that is something God will not do. He is God. We are not. He is not going to bless our will. He is going to show us His will. And then He is going to say, choose me. Choose to do my will. And we have to be willing to do God's will no matter what that is. No matter how uncomfortable it is. No matter how hard it is. No matter how contrary it is to our character, our nature, the way that we have been raised. None of that, none of that matters. We are to do God's will no matter what. That, that is to be our chief desire in life. That's why I said we have to submit to God's will. It's not really submission until we don't want to do it. God doesn't call on us to do His will when it's convenient or when we want to do it or when it pleases us. We are to do His will no matter what. Even the case of Jonah. Jonah clearly did not want to go to Nineveh. But what did he end up doing? He submitted to God's will and he went. And that's what we're to do. 
Disciples, we must be deliberate to seize the day to do God's will. And to do that, we must submit to God's will. So a question is, are we being careful and deliberate to seize the day and do God's will? I mean, that's a question each of us has to answer on our own. I mean, is there an area of your life where right now you know what God wants you to do, but you're not doing it? What is it? And why aren't you doing it? Are you willing to do God's will no matter what that may be? If so, spend some time this week. Seek the Lord. Ask Him to show you. Take your Bible and a notebook and at the top of your page write, is there any area of my life where I'm not submitted to God's will? And then pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Pray that. God always answers this prayer. And as God shows you areas of your life where you're not submitted to His will, write them down. And then search the Scripture to see what it says about those areas. And once you know what God's will is, pray and say, By Your grace, O God, I will do Your will. And then get up and go do God's will. Disciples of Jesus must be deliberate and careful to do God's will. That is what we're here for. We must devote ourselves to the will of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, O God, to be deliberate and to be careful about doing your will. Help us, O God, to see... That your will is always best and it is always right. And God, even where we cannot see that. Give us the grace to submit to your will and do what we know you want us to do. Search us this week and reveal things in our lives. Areas where we are not living the way that you'd want us to live. Let these areas where we're out of sync with your will, let it bother us. Lord, the world around us is going to tell us we're okay. Lord, if we were to talk to an unbeliever about this thing that you show us, they're going to tell us that it's not that big of a deal. We're taking it too seriously. But God, let us recognize that as the voice of the enemy that seeks to destroy our souls and not the voice of our Savior that calls on us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. Make us to do Your will above all else, God. Make us devoted to You. Make us understand the time and redeem the time. Make us to be wise and not fools. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.